0: Welcome to the very first episode of The Formed Podcast, where we desire to be a people who are formed by the person of Christ as he's revealed to us in the scriptures, by the Holy Spirit who resides in each of us who are his, and by his people, the church through which he accomplishes his work in the world. I'm Hannah Reed.
1: And I'm Steve Sewer, and thank you for joining us. And um, Hannah, so uh, I thought maybe as we kick off, you should talk a little bit about why you're here.
0: Mm, yes. So... That's a great question.
1: You know, when we had started the <laughs> podcast.
0: <we laughs> you should answer this. I don't really know. Yeah.
1: When we had started the idea for the podcast, um, uh, I don't listen to a lot of podcasts. And so we, um, when, when it came time to produce this one, um, I came to the realization, like, I don't want to just monologue. And then I realized that in podcasts, there's usually conversations. And I threw that idea out to you. And you talked about your experience here at the office.
0: Yeah. So it's been really helpful Uh, even as I'm really part-time, just 10 hours a week, um, to be around you and other leadership. like I'm around Leanne all the time, um, who's a deacon, and around you, and just spending time with the other elders, that any question I'm coming up against in life, or anything I'm going through, that there's just that open dialogue And that's been a gift for me because I have access to your wisdom and insight into the circumstances of daily life and things I'm encountering in the culture, um, which is something that I would love for everyone at Creekside to have, but not everyone can work here or, and you don't have time for, to spend like hours with everyone in the body. Um, so I think this could be a really cool avenue for people to kind of get an insight into that experience.
1: Yeah, so we had originally presented the podcast as an opportunity to hear from leadership of the church. But, you know, based on what Hannah's experience was here, we thought it would be better just to have kind of one of our office type conversations and let you all sit in. So I'm glad that she's here this time. Other podcasts, depending on what the topic is, there might be other elders that are speaking or maybe other people that are joining us And so, um, but for right now you get, you get Hannah and I, so Hannah, what was the question that we're supposed to talk about today?
0: Yeah. So this question was submitted and had the most votes when we solicited those, uh, via the weekly, uh, the question is how do we navigate and respond with Christ's heart to transgender slash other rise in culture, love versus tolerance to meet needs versus reaction to behavior. And you love this question.
1: Yeah, I was excited that this was the question that we got to tackle for our first podcast ever, which, you know, kind of humorously, it's nothing like getting an easy one for the first podcast, but I'm excited about it because I think it's exactly what I want this podcast to be, is a chance for us to have some conversations around about what it means to live as God's people in this world. And these are the kinds of questions that we need to um, face as we live in this cultural moment that God's called us in. And and it's the, the answer to this question is one that addresses things that we face, it addresses things our neighbors face. And it speaks to kind of the core of our convictions about what we believe is required for us as humans to flourish. And, you know, the last reason I think that I'm really excited about it is that it it the answer to the question isn't so much about someone else. It's about the kind of people that we're called to be. Mm-hmm. And uh, so I'm excited to be able to speak into that as we interact with and seek to love our neighbors here in McMinnville.
0: Hmm. So I guess we should start with scripture, like how to think biblically about this issue. So Is there any foundation, foundational things we need to address before we talk about how to respond?
1: Yeah, I think it's absolutely important to for us to spend some time to think biblically because our responses are always going to be informed by our like our understanding of things. And so if we don't think well, I don't think we'll we can have any sort of confidence that we'll be able to respond well and respond in a way that honors Christ unless we like have a really clear thought about it. And I, you know, as I was thinking about it, I think the best place to start with this is the words of Jesus um in Mark chapter 10 verse 6 that The Pharisees had come to him um, and and they were they were talking about divorce and and kind of had a broken view of marriage and divorce. And and Jesus responded to them. um, And I'm just going to be paraphrasing here because I don't have my Bible open to it. But he said, um, you know, have you not read from the beginning that God made them male and female? You know, what Jesus starts off and really clearly is saying that God's creative intention from the very beginning of creating created humanity is that he created us as his people to be male and female. Like so he sets up this binary system like right out of the gates and and in doing so, he. He appeals back to Genesis chapter one. He's quoting from Genesis chapter one, verses 26 and 27, where it speaks about the creation of of humanity. And and it says in Genesis one, 26 and 27, God's speaking. And he says, let us make man in our image, according to our likeness, and let them rule over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the sky and over the cattle and over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. So there's this really cool thing that Jesus does as he refers back to Genesis is he brings really like some like pinpoint clarity to the, the fact that God created us as male and female. And, and what immediately happens after that in Genesis is that there, there had been this sixfold refrain of and it was good at the end of each kind of like scene in genesis chapter one but after the creation of of man and woman there's this the chapter concludes with this statement that it was very good like this everything that god had made is is highlighted by this creation of man and woman who are both created in his image and it was a very good situation where god was just blessing his people and So one of the things we see from the very beginning is that there's this there's this clarity that God's blessing and his intention for humanity is that we live in like um, kind of in in respect of our genders as male and female. But there's something else in Genesis one that I think is really important, too. It's it's that there's this dignity that comes along with it, that being created in God's image meant that. that that we are distinct from the rest of creation. It says that both male and female are created in God's image. So both of us bear the image of God upon us, um, which elevates both men and women. Like there's this complete equality in that um, image bearing. And and with that comes this dignity that affects the way that we're supposed to respond to others. And that's why I think we need to think clearly about this. We need to think clearly about what God says about about gender, that we're created male and female, but we also need to think clearly about the dignity that being created in the image of God conveys upon all of us. And you can see this at different places in the scriptures, but James is the clearest in James chapter three, verses nine and 10. He's talking about our use of our language, our words, specifically using the metaphor of the tongue. And he says with it, we, we bless God and we curse men these things ought not to be that. Oh, we curse men who are created in the image of God. And then he says, these things ought not to be that, not to be so. Um, What he's saying is that there is something radically inconsistent about worshipers who on one hand worship God and on another hand, like curse men, or I would just interpret that as looking down on them with scorn or contempt or disdain and and this, this idea of the Imago Dei is, is saying that every single person, whether they are the same political party as us, whether they are the same religion as us, whether they have the same view of sexuality that, than us, is created in the image of God. And because of that, they deserve um, our honor as fellow image bearers. And And James is, is rebuking his readers about the inconsistency that comes where we can claim to worship God on one hand and disdain our, our fellow humans on the other. And so I think like just being grounded in that is really important for us as we enter into this issue, because too often there's, there's, I think our our conversations are more filled with scorn and contempt and Mm -hmm. speaking about people as radically different than us than recognizing that we're all created in God's image. Mm -hmm.
0: So while we have in scripture, these things that I think most people at Creekside would affirm like a clear gender binary from the beginning in Genesis and reiterated by Jesus. Um, High view of our physical bodies as both good and integral to our identity and our image bearing. Um, And also the brokenness of those physical bodies. Like we have all those things held that I think that we would All affirm as foundational and like understood in this conversation. And then you said it, scripture speaks also to the next part of how to engage with our neighbor. But I think everyone's still wondering how. How to do that? Like, what does that
1: mean? Well, you mentioned a whole bunch of things that I think. I think we, yeah, you know, like you said. I think most people probably listening to this podcast, if you're a part of Creekside, are probably going to affirm those things. But I, I want to, I want to just synthesize a couple of things that you said. You, you spoke about how about the value of our bodies, about um, uh, how God's created us to be integrated people, and and I think as we think about these things, it's there's something that really profound that emerges. Even as we consider the where our culture is in regards to transgender ideology, you know, there's. Transgender ideology, you know, I think at its core would say that who I truly am as a person—I think that they might use the term self or identity—is um, separate from my physical body. That mm-hmm. my um, and and what there are, what what people are all around us are affirming is that there that that we are more than just our physical stuff. That there is part of us, and and I think what our culture would be saying right now is that the most part of most important part of us is something that transcends my physical body what they call their identity you know, and this, this
0: actually is in the church as well
1: what do you mean by that
0: I mean I think this is something that the church as a whole now I can't really speak for the whole church in the world across eras well but I know it was this was the thing in the early church and I see it now of this um, kind of devaluing of our physical selves. Um, like our physical bodies, and that are um, in an elevation of our, like our spirit or our soul. Um, What is that called? Dualism?
1: Yeah, I think so. I think it's taken different manifestations, whether it's Gnosticism at the beginning, which like spoke really negatively of like physical matter in general. I think there was asceticism. There was a, a, mm-hmm. a lot of different movements that came out of that. but. It, I think one of the things that we can celebrate about it is that our culture all around us is affirming that that there is this critical part of ourself that we don't really have an explanation mm-hmm. for that that the Bible has spoken about from the very beginning when God created Adam and He breathed into him. It says, "And Adam became a living spirit." You know, the the Bible talks mm-hmm. about that transcendent mm-hmm. part of ourself mm-hmm. as being like our soul or our spirit and. And it's a it's a really profound thing that our culture right now is is recognizing that. But I think the where, where they where our culture is going astray and where it falls short is that they have too low of a view of humanity, and and they view their their physical bodies at best as being irrelevant to who they are, or at worst they're actually opposed to who they are, and and so they just treat their body as something to be manipulated or discarded or used. Um, um, in whatever way best suits their identity, mm-hmm. and and I think what that you know um, Nancy Piercy talks about this in her book, um, Love Thy Body. I think what happens is is that in our culture today, people are just left with this fragmented and broken view of themselves, where they don't really have um, where where the Bible presents something so much more beautiful. The Bible presents us as integrated people where. Like our physical bodies are part of who we are, are not opposed to who we are, <laughs> and that, and that there can be some substantial like healing in Christ when we when we feel that brokenness. And it shouldn't surprise us that people around us are feeling this fragmentation within themselves because um, we see that in the nature of the fall. Like when when Adam and Eve like rebelled against God and when they shattered everything that was good, we saw it immediately in their relationships. they they're perfect unified. Complementary relationship that existed became like shattered with blame and competition and power and all of these dynamics. And the scriptures even talk about that this this fragmentation within ourselves. And so mm-hmm. I mean we, we should understand because each and every one of us is uniquely imprinted by the fall in a specific way. I think um, Rosario Butterfield spoke about her struggles in that in those terms. And, and it shouldn't surprise us that our neighbors around us are feeling that fragmentation even within themselves as mm-hmm. they're with an identity and, and their bodies being at war. But the, the hope of Christ is that is that, we can, is that in Christ there can be this congruence and integration and restoration mm-hmm. to the things that we've, that we've mm-hmm. lost. Mm-hmm.
0: When well, haven't we all experienced that? We should. like if we have an understanding of who we are. Or even if we don't, like, I think everybody in the church getting a Bloody Mary on Sunday morning instead, like, no matter your spiritual background, I think that everybody can experience that kind of, that fragmentation. I think that's a great word. Like, there's this discrepancy kind of, there's just something broken within me, um, and within our physical bodies and our spirits, like, I don't, I, I think you'd be hard pressed to find somebody who would argue that or who could defend it for very long. Because we all feel it, I think.
1: Yeah, I think we do. Francis Schaefer, like, years ago wrote um, that the comprehension of, like, this brokenness within ourselves, moment by moment, of these things is a vital step in freedom from the results of the bonds of sin and in substantial healing of the separation of man from himself, mm. like until we recognize that. But I think that there's this pervasive cynicism that kind of uh, it has affected our culture where there is no hope of integration. Mm. And so they turn, you know, instead to um, things that aren't going to provide that healing and, and just, and just create more brokenness. I think even research is showing that, you know, it's beginning to come in that a lot of the solutions that people, that, are being offered in our culture today aren't having the desired results, mm-hmm. and um, yeah. But in Colossians, it's interesting that Colossians, Paul's writing to the church in Colossians, and he says this, talking to the to Christians, he says, "and and put on the new self, who is being renewed to a true knowledge according to the image of the one who created him." That you know, as we go through this world, the, that image of God within us becomes like marred and tainted and broken and And there's this renewal that Paul speaks about, according to God's image, again, that our restoration back to who God created us to be as male and female can happen. And we should have that hope within ourselves and be agents of that hope to other people.
0: Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So how do we engage in a way that is wise, holds these truths, but also winsome? And in a way that's without compromise on these things that we know to be true from scripture and are clear and affect not just our lives, but the lives of the world around us and are essential to human flourishing without compromising that, but are also compassionate.
1: Yeah. I think that, I think there's two things that are in response and we might've already talked about it that we need to think well and we need to love deeply and and Jesus is the perfect example of that, right? Like you had read me a quote before we got started here from um, Preston Sprinkle that I think speaks to this very thing. And um, I, why don't you why don't you share with us the quote and then maybe I'll like point us to some place in the scripture then um, afterwards.
0: Yeah. So in his, in the last chapter of his book, Embodied, which is called the chapter is called Outrageous Love, and the whole thing's great. I feel like I could read the whole thing here, but. Um, This is something this is something that I underlined and start. Jesus was against many things, but somehow he had a reputation of being for people. Somehow Jesus was able to have a clear ethical stance, to speak out clearly against sin, and yet to still draw to himself the very people who were found guilty by his words. Do you want me to keep going? The rest was so good.
1: Yeah, keep going. If I keep
0: going, I'll just keep reading the rest of the book. (laughs) As the number of trans people in the world increases, our churches should have more trans people, not fewer. Not because our ethic is weak or unclear, but because it is strong and holistic, true, courageous, compassionate, and humble. If people, especially marginalized and broken people, come into our communities, they should never want to leave. We need less outrage and more outrageous
1: love. That's a great line at the end. You didn't read that to me before. I know, Well, I read you
0: a lot. I started earlier and finished <laughs> before I'd <Yeah>. underlined.
1: <laughs> and what a great line. We need more, out, less, less outrage. outrage and more outrageous love, which brings us to, I think, like the the passage of scripture where we should, where, where I think we need to really apply to this situation. It's, you know, Jesus in Luke chapter 10 has an encounter with a man who's an expert in the Jewish law. You know, he believes, he thinks right about all the issues before him. And, and Jesus' interaction with the man cuts right to the heart of this issue. is Because the man came to Jesus and he says, well, what do I need to do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus turned the, the, the question back on the man and asked him what, what he thought the law said. And, and the man gave a pretty decent answer and, and said this. He says, and he answered, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength and with all your mind and your neighbor as yourself. And Jesus said to him, you have answered correctly, do this and you will live. But he, desiring to justify himself, said to Jesus, and who is my neighbor? You know, it's really interesting because this guy says, "Oh, if I'm the kind of person that loves God with everything I am and loves my neighbor with the same intensity that love that I love myself, that I'll be good. And Jesus is like, yeah, you're absolutely right. Um, go do that and you'll live. And then the condemnation f- fell on the guy because it says that he, desiring to justify himself, Said to Jesus, "Who is my neighbor?" Mm-hmm. So, what do you think is behind that question? Who is my neighbor?
0: Who do I have to do this for? Like- yeah,
1: <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Who Who do I have to love, or maybe more appropriately, who do I not I have, have to love? Yeah, right. Like, um, because we all probably have a list. Like, oh, I can love like this group of people, or I could even love this group of people, but mm-hmm. this mm-hmm. other group of people is outside of my ability to love and. And so, the, you know, Jesus tells the story, the, the really well-known story of the Good Samaritan where, where there was a Jewish guy going from Jerusalem down to Jericho. It was a dangerous road. He gets attacked by some robbers, beaten, left for dead on the side of the road. And, and a couple Jewish religious guys go by and each of them, like, don't want to take the risk to, to um, help the guy. And so they just pass by on the other side of the road and just keep going. And then a Samaritan comes along and the Samaritans were those, were the, the marginalized, disenfranchised kind of group within the nation of Israel who who all the like real Jews looked down upon, who they discriminated against, um, didn't even, you weren't even supposed to like hang out with them at all. And a Samaritan's coming along and he sees this Jewish person who would have been like representative of the people group that oppressed him and marginalized him. And, and we're told that, this guy stopped. It says that when he when he saw him, it's in verse 33, it says when he saw him, he felt compassion on him. And then it says, and he came to him. Like this guy's compassion didn't just cause him to feel bad, that he actually moved towards him. And then it says in verse 34 that he cared for him and he bandaged him using his own oil and wine to do so. And then he took him down to an inn and he told the innkeeper that no matter what it cost, like he would, he would pay the rest of the bill um, when he returned.
0: Can we pause the story really quick? Sure. I think it's worth saying, and something that I didn't realize for a really long time about this story, that just growing up in the church, I didn't have a robust understanding of the Samaritan. This wasn't just like a racial thing. Like the Samaritans were discriminated against because of actually, like if you go way, 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 way back, they actually were worshiping in the wrong place. Right? Like they actually, it's not like this was like just a total, like, I mean, of course, like discrimination is wrong, but this view that the Jews had that they looked down on the Samaritans wasn't just completely arbitrary. Like they had a reason. I'm, Putting my anyway, quote, t- like, what Scare are these quotes? called? Scare, Scare quotes. quotes. Yeah. <laughs> they had a reason for it that was based on something that was true. They're like, "Oh, you guys! Instead of being the faithful, true people, you guys worshipped in the wrong place."
1: Yeah, it even and goes further back God. than that. Like after the after the Assyrians like took Israel captive, um, the Samaritans were those who like intermarried and yeah. just became assimilated. Then they created their own like temple on. Um, uh, what was the name of the mountain? They created their own temple shortly before the time of Christ. That temple had been destroyed, I think, by the Zealots um, and maybe Judas Maccabeus. And
0: but not just yeah. intermarried; like it wasn't just racially. It's like compromise a religious, they were religious and moral compromise right. to worship of the one true God. Right. So absolutely, yeah. It's not like this was just like I don't know. It, it lends to me. I think it gives make, it makes it more relevant to today not to minimize, like, I'm not saying anything that's untrue about, uh, it doesn't change the basics of the story. It just lends more insight. And I think parallels some places that I can see where culture or the church can go today.
1: Um, Well, I think it's easy for, and I'm not sure who to best apply this kind of thinking about the Samaritans to, but as I think about the church today in the culture that we find ourselves in, it's easy to feel probably like the Samaritan that somewhat marginalized, somewhat looked down upon, like Christianity isn't viewed as this positive thing anymore. Um, Anybody that holds to like a biblical, like sexual ethic that believes that God created us as male and female is looked upon with, with disdain. And so I think it would be easy for us to probably feel like the Samaritans and which makes the, what the Samaritan did, even all the more powerful that he, these people that like mistreated him, Mm, like he mm -hmm. felt compassion on him. He, he, uh, he moved towards him. He went to him. It says in the text that he, he bandaged him with using his own oil and wine. And and he, and he loved him in a way that was Mm -hmm. like costly. Mm -hmm. This, this person that missed that what a part of this people that mistreated him. And, After Jesus tells the story, he asks this question. He says, um, which of these three do you think proved to be the neighbor to the man who fell among the robbers? And the man said, the one who showed him mercy. Mm -hmm. And Jesus said to him, you go and do likewise. So it's interesting, this story starts with this command to love our neighbor. And in the middle, there's there's this compassion there's this initiative of moving towards, there's this willingness to sacrifice oil, oil wine, time, money. Um, the, the expert in the law defines that as showing mercy. You know, so there's something about, that helps us define what it means to love our neighbor as ourself. We need to be people that demonstrate God's mercy to others and show compassion and initiative and are willing to spend our own oil and wine to care for Mm -hmm. someone who's different than us and um, love people in a way that's costly. And um, I don't think we often think about our neighbors here in McMinnville in those same terms. I think we, It'd be easy for us at Creekside to think like oh I need to love my neighbor which means I need to love my fellow church members which mm-hmm. is true mm-hmm. but it means you need to love everybody you come in contact with with the same kind of love that that uh, the Samaritan demonstrated that's what Jesus is saying like the the kind of person that inherits the kingdom of God is the kind of person that that loves with initiative and cost and mercy and compassion and I think our discussions around the, the the whole issue around transgenderism and biblical sexuality, I think, so often lacks those qualities. And like Preston Sprinkle said, it's more filled with outrage than out, the, the kind of outrageous love that the Samaritan demonstrated.
0: So I have an I have what I think is an answer to the question, this question, but I'm curious what you say. What do you think keeps us from? As Christians in our current cultural context, from extending that radical, outrageous love and mercy to our neighbors, specifically our LGBTQ neighbors, or those who kind of advocate that, like the rainbow flags surrounding our building right now and our community.
1: Well, I have. Did I say too many words? No, no. Do you remember what the, the question was? Yeah, the blank look on my face is because I was like, oh, I, I wasn't ready for that question. So I'm just going to say what you Sorry, just said. Sorry,
0: this wasn't in the notes.
1: Yeah, I have an answer to that question while I think about it. Uh, so, <laughs> tell me, so tell me what your answer to the question is.
0: Oh, okay. You can't change it. No, you can't change it based on what I say.
1: Well, I'm just going to do what Jesus did. Beat, what does the right? law read to you? Yeah. How does it read to you? So.
0: It's not the same when you do it as when Jesus does it <laughs> I think what, what keeps me, I guess I should just make it a me thing. What keeps me from loving the people who are on my list of hard to loves, unlovables, not unlovables, but hard for my spirit to love is this, um, distorted and kind of perverted understanding view of myself and my goodness that makes me think that I'm better than that group of people. And I think that um, it sounds so gross to admit that because we don't want to admit that about ourselves, but I see it in my heart. And I think, I mean, I hope that by the time I'm 50 or I don't know how long this takes, but that I'm continually sanctified and then that's just removed, but I can see it as this like dark lurking thing in my heart and it's consistent in the scriptures. Um, of this self-righteousness and this pride that we so desperately want to be great in our own eyes. And I think the best way to do that is not actually to look at ourselves, but to demonize, look down on, and belittle other people so that we can step up on them and feel better about ourselves. And I think it's a... I see it in myself, and I see it in the community around me. I think it's like something we just need to see as something that we need to watch for as humans, like our flesh fighting for that. And it really is completely uh, antithetical to what the gospel is. So we think that there's this freedom in the gospel, and yet we forget to daily embrace that, oh, to have that freedom in the gospel and Christ's righteousness, I actually need to let go of any illusion I have of grasping desperately onto my righteousness. And I think that that is why, for me at least, and I imagine for others, why it's hard for us to do this is because in doing so, we have to let go of our illusion of our Self righteousness.
1: Yeah, I think that there's definite wisdom in that. The um, when we take our eyes off of Christ and realize, you know, I think, what does it say in Galatians that if righteousness came by keeping the law, then Christ died needlessly. You know that it's another interesting thing he says in Galatians. He says, "You have been severed from Christ. You have fallen from grace." And we would tend to think, if I was to say, oh, Hannah, you've been severed from Christ, you've fallen from grace, it's that you've done some horrible mm-hmm, like mm-hmm. thing that makes you outside of God's reach. But he goes on to say, you have, you've been severed from Christ, you've fallen from grace, you are seeking to be justified by keeping the law. Um, which is, let me make sure I'm not misquoting it. Um, uh, I'm going to turn there.
0: Galatians, you know where it is?
1: Um, I, know it's a short where, I know where on the page it is. <laughs> It's uh, chapter five, verse, um, yeah. Oh, I, I, I got, I, the sentiment was right. The order of the phrases was wrong. You have been severed from Christ. You who are seeking to be justified by law, you have fallen from grace. He goes mm. on. Um, for we, through the Spirit, by faith, are waiting for the hope of righteousness. For in Christ, neither circumcision nor uncircumcision means anything but faith working through love. And I think what Paul's saying, and it's at the essence of what you're saying, is that we so often like to take our eyes off of Christ and our desperate need for grace. That's why he says your your efforts to justify yourself by keeping the law are keeping you from grace. Mm-hmm, in mm-hmm. Our, have, have caused you to fall from grace because righteousness is something that's given to us mm-hmm. here. It's spoken about as the hope of righteousness. We'll mm-hmm. experience it fully one day, but Romans four speaks about it in the sense of that. It's been the, the theological word is imputed to us or credited to us. It's an accounting term that when we come to Jesus Christ, like all of our guilt is taken away and all of Christ's righteousness is deposited into our account. So it's not like We just have our account zeroed out because we came to Christ. And then we got to try real hard not to rack up a big debt again. It's just the opposite. Not only are we zeroed out, our accounts, like our debts taken away, but all of Christ's righteousness is deposited into Mm -hmm. our account. And and when we realize that it's by the grace of God that we are who we are, then it's a lot easier to extend grace and love and mercy to other people. Mm -hmm. Um, I guess the question that really kind of gets to the brass tacks of the question Is, you know, so what does that look like? Like what would you think if we loved our neighbors? And and it doesn't have to be somebody that's like believes something different to us on the transgender ideology. Could be anybody that's different than us. Like if we if we love our neighbor with the same intensity with which we love ourselves, if we have that kind of initiative, costly merciful love towards others what would that look like in our day-to-day relationships
0: um i think one thing is that you just have to interact with people so i think that's that our comfort like we can really have everything we need from our home now like we don't have to go to the grocery store your kids can like work out on their Wii. like they don't have to go Like, play in the street with other kids. Um, A lot of us work remote and don't share a workplace anymore. Um, We're so connected, kind of tenuously, like, barely to so many people online that we don't have margin for relationships in our neighborhood. It's also uncomfortable, so in a culture where we've made comfort paramount. We're like a really, really wealthy people, wealthy country. We're in a wealthy part of the country. Um, I think we just don't have time for people, period. Let alone people who are different than us and like scarecots don't fill us up, you know? Like I just need... Like, my life's busy enough and hard enough with all my commitments and all my things I have to do in this, like, frenzied life that I don't have time for that. So I think that's key, a key thing I see. Um, You're looking something up. Did you find it?
1: I'm listening to you.
0: No, I believe you that you're listening to me. I'm just done talking, so it's your turn. No, I think (laughs) I have nothing else to say.
1: Like that, I mean, there's no way I think we can love our neighbor as ourselves if we have no relationships with our neighbors. No, you know, and the when you were talking, I I read this article this morning. It's in Common Good magazine, which is a great magazine. If anybody wants to get it, it's Um, also free. Yeah, is it is it free for everybody? I mean, somebody pays just, for it. Yeah, somebody <laughs> pays for it, but because it's, it's really well produced too. Um, but they had this study from um, Barna did a study on um, funded by Thrivent that that talks about generosity and giving, and they broke it out by what pastors think, and then what Gen Z, Millennials, Gen X, and Baby Boomers mm. all think about like certain questions around generosity, and. Um, it's interesting that pastors were the ones that believed that that the best way to show generosity through somebody is like through financial giving to important causes and things like that. Hmm. Um, but pretty much every other uh, age group, one of the top, um, I'm just looking here to make sure I have this right, um, for sure among the Gen Z, Gen Z says that, which is, Um, I think 18 to 25 year olds, I think there's kind of who fits into that category that um, giving of self, like being welcoming, inviting and hospitable to others and being emotionally and relationally supportive of others Mm -hmm. is the way to like, that they really experience people's generosity. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, That those numbers go down a little bit, depending on your age bracket. Like um, it's like one in over one in five Gen Zers would say that being welcoming is the best way to show uh, generosity, being emotionally supportive. a third, Almost a third of them said that being emotionally supportive and relationally supportive is a way to do that. So, and generosity and grace are tied together. Generosity and love are tied together. Well, and, and so, hospitality. Yeah, and hospitality. Biblically. Yeah, for sure. Like, hospitality in the scriptures is not what we think it is. Do you know mm-hmm. what the word hospitality is?
0: Love of stranger. Yeah,
1: it's this it's this compound word that means love of stranger not entertain your friends um is how we typically think can of can we
0: entertain our strangers yeah so <laughs> just i love entertaining
1: <laughs> yeah well and it's not entertaining it's like showing love to those people that yeah have, that are outside that you aren't in a relationship yeah. with so i think that there's like something really really true about that 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 and that's i think even the the good samaritan story speaks to that that when he saw him, he felt compassion and he came to him. He moved towards mm-hmm. him. Mm-hmm. Like how often are, you know, I don't have the the privilege anymore of being able to work in a situation where I'm interacting with um, unsaved people like every moment of the day um, at work. But, you know, how often do we tend to isolate instead of moving towards? Um, how often do we tend to condemn instead of showing mercy? How often do we... Um, tend to be stingy instead of just showing the outrageous love that we need to show other people. Mm-hmm. You know, there's some practical ways to think about it. Not, you know, if, you know, I think it's easy for, you know, I guess one of the things I've learned um, over the years, mostly through failing people in different ways is that you um, What's in my heart will typically come out in my interactions with other people, mm-hmm. regardless of how hard I try to, like, say it just perfectly or do it just perfectly. Mm-hmm. Like, what's in my heart mm-hmm. tends to come out, and so that's where I think it's it be, it begins with just us really taking honest check of ourselves. Like, do we show our neighbors who differ with us the same dignity that they deserve as fellow image bearers? Do we love our neighbor with the same intensity that we love ourselves? Do we um, take Initiative to demonstrate that love to, to people or do we just play it safe all the time and I don't think we I think too often we probably should just keep our mouth shut because we we don't have the, same, the kind of heart for people that Jesus had and, and because Jesus had his heart for people he was able to do what Preston Sprinkle said um, and so Speak out of conviction, and yet at the same time, um, have this posture that invited people towards him. Mm
0: -hmm. Yeah, I don't know. Remember, I've been reading so many books lately that I don't remember which one it was in. It was, I think, it was in um, the Sam Albury one, "What God Has to Say About Our Bodies," Um, but it might be Preston Sprinkle's one. But that Jesus wasn't pro-tax collecting in the way it was done in the Roman Empire. It was not nice, really messed up, and yet he moved towards the tax collectors (laughs) and ate with them and cared for them. I wish I could, like, was a fly in the wall and could hear more of those conversations of, I don't know, like, did he ask them about their lives and what they were experiencing? And Jesus doesn't have anything to learn from them, really, because he knows everything, but... I think people know when you actually are curious about them and care about them and not just when they're a project or you have an agenda. Um, I think people can sense that pretty early.
1: Yeah. I mean, it's interesting because, you know, the tax collectors, you think about, you know, oftentimes people will think about Zacchaeus because he was a tax collector, you know, the short guy that climbed up the trees Mm -hmm. that he could see Jesus. But Matthew, the author of the Gospel of Matthew, he was a tax collector. And the remarkable thing about it is that after Matthew comes to Jesus, he throws a party out of his house with um, all of his tax collector friends. And Jesus goes and hangs out with all of his tax collector and sinner friends. And he immediately starts getting flack from the religious elite uh, for hanging out with people like Matthew. Mm -hmm. And yet Matthew becomes one of his disciples and the author of the Gospel of Matthew. And in Jesus' like inner circle of disciples, the 12, there was also Simon, the zealot, the zealots were Mm. the terrorists Mm -hmm. of, of first century Palestine. And they were the ones that would kill the tax collectors. So it's, Mm. um, it's really interesting. I think they were
0: at odds. I didn't know it was that vicious.
1: Yeah. I was just listening to a lecture last or earlier this week um, where the zealots would go into large crowds of publicans, which was the name of the group that Matthew, the tax collector would have been part of with like daggers and just like go through the crowd and like stab people um, uh, when they were, when they were in groups like that. And so, and, and the cool thing is, is that having both of them coming to Christ, they were unified together under Mm -hmm. Christ this. And so all of a sudden all of their, background didn't matter all of their like political ideologies didn't matter um it was their devotion to christ overshadowed it all and they and they followed him and it was upon those those people that christ founded his church Mm, you know mm. and um and i think if a tax collector and a zealot could um cross those boundaries because of their devotion to christ we should be able to do the same Mm, thing mm -hmm.
0: So one way to love radically is by moving towards being in a relationship, making space for welcoming, hearing from. These kind of summarizing things we've talked about. Um, but I feel like in the back of my mind, I hear someone be like, "Well, what's really loving? Like, is it really loving if you're like?" X letting them think everything's okay. If it's not okay, you know, like that kind of dialogue. Yeah, Do you know what I mean, I'm saying? Does that make sense? I didn't articulate that very well.
1: No, I think it makes sense, but I, I think that there's, um, you know, and there's clearly opportunity for, for conversations in different contexts. But I think when a Um, we can't, yeah, I I think I would agree with part of the premise of that. Like, I don't think we can truly love a person if we never speak to some of the, the areas of greatest kind of brokenness that they experience. Mm -hmm. You know, when Jesus went to the Samaritan woman at the well, probably one of the things that she was most ashamed about was her kind of like, he, he asked her, he said, Hey, why don't you bring your husband? And, and. And she's like, oh, I don't have a husband. He's like, oh yeah, you're right, because you've had five husbands and the guy you're living with now isn't even your husband. Um, and he didn't say it in a in a way that brought condemnation on her. He said it in a way that, again, like somehow invited her in. But mm. he went to probably the greatest area of shame that she was experiencing and spoke to it. You know, the rich young ruler comes to Jesus, hey, what do I need to do to like inherit eternal life? Oh, sell everything you have and give mm. it to the poor. Like, oh, the he went right to the area mm-hmm. that this guy probably relied upon the most and called him to turn from it repentance and faith mm-hmm. and so I, I think as God's people we have to not be afraid to mm-hmm. speak um, when we have opportunity to speak but we need to have like a missional posture with people where we're going to them and we are engaging them and we are understanding them as people. And they're not just project that we genuinely love them. And I think when, when things are in the context of like obedience to Christ and like operating under his like Lordship and, and loving people the way that Jesus loves them, when we speak, it comes different. It comes out differently than, Mm -hmm. than when we just speak as if it's a political issue or a moral issue or a social issue. Mm -hmm. It's, it's, people created in God's image that need to be restored, just like I need to be restored. Mm-hmm. Um, what Paul's language in Colossians 3, that to put off the old self so that I could be renewed according to the image of the God who created me is just as true for me today um, mm-hmm. as it is for anybody else. Um, else's need to do that. So I think we, we do need to speak, but we need to speak in a way that demonstrates understanding and mercy and compassion mm-hmm. and love.
0: I do love that thing that... I don't remember which book it was in. I think I might have heard in a podcast that Rosaria Butterfield shared when she was living her lesbian lifestyle and a pastor and his wife befriended her and cared for her. And she said that they helped me realize something to this effect, that they helped her realize that her greatest problem was not her homosexuality, but it was her lack of submission to Jesus Christ, or to his word, or something to that effect. Um, And I think that was helpful for me in how to engage this. Like, we all need to be restored. We're all fragmented. And that does not begin with fixing, insert specific broken issue, because we can't actually fix that. That's not, like, a prerequisite, like... Christ will fix that. And worship, submitting to him as Lord is the like first step. And I think it's easy to get that mixed up culturally. It's like we want to clean people up first. Um, she also talks about how slow that whole process was, which we should see it in ourselves. Like, oh, my process. I still have a long ways to go. And maybe people are looking at me like, wow, she really needs to sort that out. <laughs> or, you know, like there's maybe sin that's apparent to other people even. And yet, like, they bear patiently with me in my sin. And, like, look for opportunity to care for me and speak truth in a way that's, like, gives life. And um, not that it can never be, like, blunt or confrontational. I'm not saying that. But generally we know, like in other issues, I feel like we know that there's a wise and winsome way to engage with someone's whatever sin of like gossip or pride or self-infatuation or like insert the blank. Um, So I think if we just treat this as the same thing, then that would be a good start in engaging this. Do you think you're scowling at me? Oh,
1: I'm, Do you think that's, I'm a a, that's a thinking face, not a scowling face. <laughs>
0: Someone so. told me recently never to look at you when they're preaching from the front. Told me, told Aaron, and I overheard it. Because you have a thinking face that looks like that.
1: <laughs> not to look at me when I'm preaching? <laughs> not
0: to look at you. You're, like, you're not a good face to look at in the crowd, so maybe you should try to smile. When other people are preaching from the pulpit, don't look at me. Don't look at you in the audience.
1: Oh, that's funny. (laughs) So so, uh, that could be pick somebody else's face. Betts.
0: pick Betts' face.
1: Well, she smiles
0: and nods and.
1: It's funny when I'm preaching, usually, um, and it's not the same people every week. But there will be like a half dozen, maybe more, faces that like kind of pop out, and then the rest just kind of like blur off. Um, which I think oh, is just interesting interesting I don't know what that is and and people always worry about sitting in the very front row if you want to make sure I don't notice you sit in the very front row mm. um, because for whatever reason I just look over you mm. you know so the front row people are never the ones I notice
0: interesting uh, good to know unless
1: they're doing something awkward I suppose I would probably notice that but the um, this is a classic Steve statement but where were we? <laughs> <laughs> we we could probably edit that with this whole section loving
0: there. loving neighbor
1: yeah, yeah. loving neighbor and, you know in this the and this whole, and where our culture is today, the, the volatileness of these conversations. Uh, you know, I was reading an article that some studies showed that, I think it was like 48% of millennials um, would say that misgendering persons should be a crime. Um,
0: 48%?
1: I think that's what it was. Wow, um, and that's a lot. Yeah, I mean, it should be actual crime. Um,
0: who gets to I, decide?
1: Yeah, I don't know. So what it's what
0: misgendering it's, is. <laughs> it's
1: it's this volatile conversation, and I think it. And, and, I, and I just want to be honest that there, when we commit to walking in love towards our neighbor, we're going to be put in situations that aren't easy. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Like I think they are that are that are filled with risk, that are filled with like uncertainty. That there's not really a clear playbook on like how to handle it. You know, there's there's debate going on in Christian circles right now about whether or not you should use like a person's preferred pronouns or not. And we can address that in a future podcast if, if um, people want to, but you know, I think at the heart of the matter is though, is that question of love. Do we genuinely love mm-hmm. our neighbor as ourself? Do we love God with everything we are? What is it? What did Luke say with all of our heart and soul and strength and mind? we love God with everything we are. And if we do like, and we love our neighbor as ourselves, I think we would probably cling less tightly to those things that keep us from loving others. We would reflect Christ's heart more to others. When we do speak, it would be received differently because it's, it's it, people know that our commitment is for them. Um, but I don't think, I don't think, um, we can genuinely love people and not put ourselves in those difficult situations. Mm-hmm. You know, this is a little, this is out of context somewhat, but I think it does apply. Jesus in the, all of the discourse says talking about the kind of the, the time towards the end of the age. And he says, and because lawlessness has increased, most people's love will grow cold. Mm-hmm. It's an interesting mm-hmm. statement in Matthew 24 that there's this, that lawlessness tends to like cause us to be cold to others. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think that I, I see that today. We see it just in our polarization today and, mm-hmm. and other things. But
0: I want to share this Henry Nguyen quote that Aaron found and shared with me. And it's directed to Christian leaders, but I think it applies to every Christian. So I'm going to make it for Christians. I'm going to set Christians for Christian leaders. Christians cannot simply be persons who have well-informed opinions about the burning issues of our time. They must be rooted in the permanent intimate relationship with the incarnate word, Jesus, and they need to find there the source for their words, advice, and guidance. Dealing with burning issues easily leads to divisiveness because before we know it, our sense of self is caught up in our opinion about a given subject. But when we are securely rooted in personal intimacy with the source of life, it will be possible to remain flexible, but not relativistic, convinced without being rigid, Willing to confront without being offensive. Gentle and forgiving without being soft. And true witnesses without being manipulative.
1: That's really good. There was a statement that I think deserves being reread. When, it, when it, He says Christians cannot simply be persons who have well-informed opinions about the burning issues of our time. And then, and then he said this. that When you read this, it struck me. They must be rooted in the permanent intimate relationship with the Incarnate Word Jesus mm-hmm. and and they need to find there in Jesus mm-hmm. the source for their words, advice, and guidance. Mm-hmm. I mean I think what Jesus would tell us is uh, love genuinely, think well, have you not read from the beginning? Mm-hmm. but then love people well enough that that um, when we speak, um, people can actually hear
0: mm-hmm. and trust him with it, honestly. yeah like I could read a book and so under, understand terminology like oh what all these things mean and kind of the language surrounding this issue but ultimately I'm a person talking to another person and like for anything to happen in myself or them like God has to work yeah for sure final thing though any homework for people or if people who are like oh I want to be more equipped in this area or what's the first step for me in this journey to loving people better loving my LGBTQ neighbor better or just my neighbor better Do you have anything
1: Yeah I would say um, I would say it would be worth reading some good books we have we've mentioned several of them here um
0: yeah, I have a stack here You haven't read this one You can't endorse any of these You can, you can endorse, endorse one You the first two
1: I, um, Steve Official I Creekside endorse,
0: Position env- endorses Love, Love Thy, Thy Body. <laughs>
1: by Nancy Piercy. And um, and I trust Hannah enough and others that have recommended Preston Sprinkle. Uh, um, the book is called Embodied Transgender Identities, the Church, and What the Bible Has to Say. And then Sam Alberry. I think Sam is on staff with... Um, at the He's church at school. the
0: Emmanuel Church Nashville.
1: Yeah, where um, Ray Orland when some of you might have been here when Ray Ortland came for our marriage conference. Sam Albery's on staff with him. Um, and his book is entitled What God Has to Say About Our Bodies by Sam Alberry. And um, it'd be good. Maybe we should order a copy of each of those and put them out on the bookshelf yeah, so that good, people can yeah. see them. Um, don't take the ones that are on the bookshelf. Everybody. I found out this week that there are more Amazon Prime accounts in America than households. Um, what? Yeah. That this doesn't
0: a, make any sense to which me. Which seems
1: like wrong. It makes me want to like drop my Amazon Prime account. But it's pretty convenient to <laughs> also <laughs> click a book one day and get it the next day. So um,
0: this is, can I, this is good. In his foreword of Sam Albury's book, he says, a church that doesn't have a robust gospel theology of the body will be unprepared to meet this generation's philosophical, psychological, sociological, scientific, and media challenges. So I think some of these books on like just under, like, what scripture has to say and how to understand ourselves as humans, as embodied humans yeah. are helpful. I think right. he's right. Um, I would say um another homework piece, if you want, if you're like, oh, I want to be faithful and obedient to this is if you don't know your neighbors, physical, physical neighbors, like look for an opportunity to get to know one of them. I'm really big on the neighborhood. If you live out in the middle of nowhere, find some other way to do it. Like, I don't know if it's your kid's sports team or someone you work with or something just, um, move towards someone who's different than you.
1: Yeah. I think there's a, a book. Um, it's, it's, I don't even know if it's in print anymore called the art of neighboring Hmm. that speaks to that, but yeah, the other challenges like every household to know like you should know your neighbors and all of the houses around you by name you know and summer's a great time to do that uh, it's easy to have people over it's easy to have like um, a barbecue it's easy people can be outside you can meet at the park but but yeah that's that's great is that we need to stop being so separate and move towards people with gospel intentionality mm. This podcast might've raised more questions than it gave answers. So if you would like to like fo- post a follow-up question, our intention is, is that when we release one podcast, which I apologize, it's taken so long to get this one out. It was a little bit more of a process than we, I anticipated. Um, but we will re- we will reopen the ability for people to ask questions so that we can start working on the next one. So if, if there's follow-up questions you would like to ask, that's great. Um, feel free to do that and hopefully this this the time you invested here was a blessing to you
0: see you next time